Hello and welcome to Books and Badgers. This is Season 2, Episode 4. This is the last episode of Mossflower before we do our big review episode. As always, I'm Colin and with me is Trevor. And we are so excited to talk about this very end uh, end few chapters of, of Mossflower. Yeah, there really are not very many chapters left in the book. I think in terms of page count, it's only like 60 pages that we've got left to cover. Yeah, it's so short, in fact, that I kind of forgot what the name of this book is. So um, it is it is book three of Water and Warriors of Water and Warriors. Yeah, it's so brief that I just kind of we spent so much time in Gotir and uh, and Salamandastron. Uh, or Salamandastrin. Wow, getting getting my <laughs> pronunciation mixed up. Um, we spent so much time in those chapters because there's or those books because they're so long. Yeah, I definitely forgot about that. But that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about <laughs> book three. Um, I'm I'm excited to get into it. But as always, before we get into it, Trevor, I got to ask you, what are you reading, man? So we know it's spooky season. Uh, at least. As of, of this recording time, it's spooky season. I think this is about at least two or three weeks out uh, from being released, but it, it's still probably October by the time you hear this. So um, I thought, what better way to kick off spooky season than with something spooky? And I read The Halloween Tree by Ray Bradbury. It's a pretty short little novella. Uh, I've been reading basically a novella every weekend, just something that I can kind of take my mind off the rest of the world. And this is intended for children. It is written in Ray Bradbury's compelling prose, basically a story about how some young boys go in search of one of their friends who has been whisked away by death, and they travel to different times and cultures and kind of learn the spirit of Halloween or at least the spirit of these kind of death rituals that we celebrate as a culture throughout time. It's a really interesting book. Definitely one of those like childhood classics for a lot of people. Yeah. And uh, it is a childhood classic for me, (laughs) but in a different respect, Uh, Trevor, you know, this story that, uh, well, you know, the story because you bought me this book. Um, However, uh, it, it was a, a purchase that you made after I told you the story of being uh, a young lad who found this book in our school library and not being someone who's very spooky. In fact, I oftentimes um, would go to our mom crying about being scared by things that you were into <laughs> and getting you in <laughs> trouble. Um, I found the Halloween tree in our, in our library and was so captivated by the cover, which if you haven't seen the cover is a group of trick or treaters who are getting ready to go basically out on a trick or treating haunt. And if you, you know, kind of distance yourself from um, the cover, you will see that it's a, 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 skull the the kids um make the artwork of a skull um and i thought that was so cool that i had swiped this book from the library i do not think i checked it out because i thought i would get in trouble for checking it out because it was a scary book (laughs) and i traced the cover because i thought it was so cool and had it in my notebook and i was retelling the story to you and you thought it was 
um, you, you, we couldn't figure out what the book was. And then it was discovered it was a Halloween tree. <laughs> so you got that for Christmas for me one year and I've yet yeah. to read it, but I, I really should. It's the right season for it. I should give it a go. Yeah, it's it's got a lot of really pretty prose. And honestly, I thought it was a pretty fun book. So, yeah, super fun. That's exciting. Well, I unfortunately have not really been reading all that much besides Redwall, uh, Matameo and Mossflower. So I can't really talk about all that I've been reading. So instead, I will share a nice little surprise that I of something that I didn't know I would really like that I like a lot. And it's Netflix's David Beckham documentary. Um, <laughs> I did not think I would enjoy this. I saw a clip on Instagram that I thought was kind of compelling of David Beckham talking about uh, it's an interview with his wife, Victoria Beckham, and talking about being a working class citizen and David Beckham. <laughs> Um, peeks through the door and says, that's not true. You should tell the truth and kind of convinces her to tell the truth that um, her, he says, what car did your, your dad drive when he picked you up from school? And she goes, well, it kind of depends. And he keeps, you know, kind of pushing her on it. And she finally reveals that her dad drove a Rolls Royce, which (laughs) is not quite working class. And that was compelling enough for me to say, I'm going to check this documentary out because I'm kind of interested to, um, yeah, it just kind of piqued my interest. So my wife and I started watching the documentary. Well, that's all I got for, uh, what I've been into, not a book at all. Instead, a documentary. We have so much that we need to cover in just a few chapters in this book three, um, of warriors in water. So what do you say we jump into it, Trev? Yeah, let's go. Of water and warriors. Of Sorry, water and warriors. Uh, of water and warriors. I'll get that eventually. So book three leads off with chapter 46. Martin tries to parlay with Sarmina, who's starting to believe that she might have a chance of eradicating the woodlanders. Martin, bedecked in armor and ready to fight, offers Sarmina and her army exile if she takes it peacefully. Her response is to initiate battle against Martin and the woodlanders, but the battle she wages is cut short with heavy losses. Martin shows mercy throughout the fight, though all involved in the conflict understand that more violence might yet come before peace is earned. Yeah, I have got a lot of thoughts on this first chapter in book three, but um, I want to hear from you first. What are your thoughts on this? You know, I think that this is a really great way to kick off book three because we've we've gone through kind of the whole process of getting martin here martin is the warrior that i think the quorum have been waiting for and now that they're all collected together they know this is going to be the final stand and so this open fight i think really um it, it it incurs heavy losses for both sides And yet I see from Martin a kind of maturation of the warrior spirit in which instead of just going scorched earth, right, he starts to kind of show 
sympathy. He sh he shows compassion. He shows mercy to his enemies. He kind of realizes like the fighting's probably not over, but that does not mean that we have to incite it further. You know, for this this time, the idea of offering exile to Sarmina and her army as an act of compassion is directly kind of in conflict with the way that Sarmina kind of thought of him at the very beginning of the story. She was like, you're trespassing on my land. I'm going to kill you. Um, and it's really only Verdaga who kind of, you know, shows that warrior spirit and is like, maybe let's not kill him. Let's do something else. Um, because it, it, it seems like it would be too destructive. And I think Martin knows like violence has a place, but it doesn't have to be the only solution to something. And I, I think that's a really interesting contemplation on like the warrior's duty, whereas Bohr was more than ready to just end all fights, you know, by by kind of sacrificing his life. Um, Martin seems to see that, you know, there is a time and a place for, for action, for violence, and there's a time and a place for compassion and peace. And he tries to offer that over uh, to these other creatures. I, I think it's a really interesting take on, you know, what, what should be just a final blowout battle. Yeah, the most puzzling thing about this chapter for me is I don't know why Sarmina thinks that she has a chance to eradicate the Woodlanders. It's very clear that she's, um, well, I guess it's not very clear to her, but she is being undermined by um, the command of, of those in her army, part of Kotir. And um, she is just going nuts with the belief that there is water running underneath the fortress. She keeps hearing the fortress. I just don't understand why she has this kind of boastful mentality that that she's winning here when every sign goes to the point that she's clearly not. I don't know if it's because maybe, you know, her her boldness or brashness thinking that she is in the the victory seat in this this war um maybe that kind of stems from her uh, uh lunacy I, i'm 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 curious as to your thoughts on that i mean i think that okay sarmina's fatal flaw is like her her pride and her rage um i i think that the problem for her is that she doesn't know what she doesn't know and she's so so sure of herself that she knows everything um, that she, she literally can't see the kind of precipice that she's been pushed to. She still believes in her power, even though we know that that power has been undermined both literally and figuratively. Um, Katir is sinking. <laughs> Katir is flooding out. Um, the foundation on which she, she has kind of centered her power is, is eroding as they're fighting even. Um, but she doesn't know that she can't see that because I, I think again, her pride and her rage, especially blind her to the circumstances. Uh, and this is her fatal flaw. Um, this is, this is what's going to lead to her downfall. Yeah, she spends a lot of time asking Brog to set up traps to put within Mossflower to try to ensnare um, and strangle and subdue um, uh, the Mossflower Woodlanders. That I think that she 
it is completely misguided as to what this the path to victory means <laughs> you know like she thinks that it's uh this cunningness that maybe she had with um well i guess my interpretation is that it's this cunningness that she just kind of prevailed over bane um mm-hmm. tricking him and Argular, uh, Argular to come after him and their kind of mutual destruction that maybe that's why she's just kind of charged with this um this newfound mm. <laughs> resiliency i'm not really sure i i do like this chapter a lot because i think it sets the stage for what is a pretty brief book three um but yeah that was that was one thing that was kind of pu- puzzling to me i i think you've hit something really on the head too though um you're, you're right sarmina does not have any other enemies at this point um as much as she thinks like you know Gingevere is probably out there conspiring against her. Like that seems to her to be the last enemy she really has in her way. She's eliminated Verdaga. She watched Fortunata die. She got rid of Bane. She got rid of Argular. Uh, Ashleg is nowhere to be seen. There's really nobody there to really contest her power. Even the rat that had been like yelling things at her through all of book two kind of undermining her her uh her power she she figures out who that rat is and has him killed off off screen you know or off page. yeah mm-hmm. um so i think to her it's like i've conquered every mountain that has been put ahead of me so why wouldn't I be able to beat these stupid woodlanders? They're not even an actual threat. And I think that Martin is just kind of the 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 last little frontier for her um, other than Gingevere. So I feel like she feels more secure in her position because she's managed to get rid of all of the other things standing in the way of her power. Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, in this chapter she's also... Um, just shooting mindlessly into Mosfa or believing that she's attacking woodlanders, but she's doing nothing but yes. scouring trees, essentially. Like, it, it, even there, she's thinking that she has the upper hand, but in reality, um, she's just wasting ammunition. And the rest of the the, the woodlanders, the quorum, the, the quorum, are just in the woods watching watching her waste effort essentially <laughs> yeah i think to to an effect it's kind of like the the lady macbeth moment where she feels like she's gotten everything and yet <laughs> you know like she she can't help yeah. but try to wash her hands of the blood that isn't even there you know it's like this is just the moment of her her total manic uh you know kind of uh psychosis yeah yeah i think you're totally right Well, in chapter 47, Martin offers Sarmina peace a second time, but the wildcat responds by shooting Martin in the side with an arrow. Martin decides peace is no longer a viable option and issues a command to sink Woodship in the River Moss. The newly sunken ship creates a dam that vastly increases the flow of water to flood Katir. Sarmina realizes that the castle is becoming a lake, but has lost so much of her army's morale that she cannot rally them. Even as she tries, Tim Ballisto lets loose a ballista, which is really a trebuchet, to start knocking down the walls and towers of Katir. Yeah, so this is where I think 
this uh, last book starts to get way more interesting. I love how Martin shows up and tries to parlay yet again. He says, the time the time is up. I told you that you have by sundown to make an agreement with me. If you don't make this agreement, I'm going to take down Cotier brick by brick. And as he's trying to parlay with her, she very slyly cocks an arrow underneath the um, the window and then shoots him. And it's it is a, it does hit Martin to the point where as he leaves, he has the arrow sticking out of him like this is yeah. an, an, a wound that Mar- Martin takes, which I think was kind of surprising because, you know, I would assume that Martin has a, a kind of plot armor. I did not think that this would happen to him. But sure enough, she gets the shot off and it's very clear that war is the only answer to what um peace is not the answer here yeah so i i like that this is included in here because i think it just goes to show how mad sarmina has really gotten and um as you mentioned in your summary the fact that she's completely undermined at this point she is trying to build herself a lifeboat and no one you know there's no lifeboat for her to be built um she tries to uh tell the uh her army that she will increase their rations that they're going to wait out the summer and then they're going to um once the summer you know they've kind of waited out the summer in in kotir they're going to go charge back at um uh, into moss flower um so this is just a waiting game in her mind and it's only for a few moments does she get anyone on her side before they quickly realize there's no way we're going to wait till summer if we're if Cotier <laughs> turns into a lake, you know, like <laughs> what what could you possibly mean? Um, so I think that that's it's a really interesting um, inclusion that Jake kind of adds to th- this chapter. Um, but, you know, me, Trevor, you know, I got to talk about <laughs> I got to talk about Temple of stuff, <laughs> which his name is really though. misleading because it's it's a trebuchet for sure it's such a convenient thing that jakes is like uh hey by the way uh martin's good friend is also a trebuchet engineer who knows how to make (laughs) these uh these uh devastating um these devastating (laughs) siege weapons yeah siege weapons yeah um so (laughs) i so real question who has need for a siege weapon against a whole bunch of i mean are you sinking ships with this thing on the northern coast like like why i think you have to yeah yeah because he tim ballisto picked up this skill defending um uh martin's homeland um in the north against these uh invading sea rats and so i think you have to have this skill to be able to sink ships like blood wake um with these uh enormous siege weapons uh and i and i believe that they're launching boulders at cotier that kind of crumble the foundation um even while sarmina is in there so you can imagine how much damage this would be um in and the effectiveness that it would have on a ship um I, yeah, it, this is a cool inclusion. I will say, I you know, I don't really like the whole, oh, this is convenient that he can like make a, a trebuchet. Um, 
I don't really know how the Quorum's plan was going to work without Tim Ballisto because, I mean, yeah, they're going to flood Kotir, but it's so convenient that he's there to be able to give them the weapon to knock over the tower in order to actually, you know, remove Sarmina and her army. I don't know. This is very nitpicky for me. Um, <laughs> I think primarily because Tim Ballisto is just a hard pill for me to swallow, but... Um, <laughs> It is it is a cool moment when the the first boulder hits the hits the tower and they're all like, what the heck was that? And they are like looking around and they can see that their foundation is literally crumbling before them. Yeah, I think for me, I I agree. It's kind of stupid that we just get this plot contrivance from Tim Ballisto. But I also kind of love it. Um, I love that the punctuation to this statement from Martin is basically like, all right, I'll just tear it down. Uh, and then immediately after they're just launching, they're launching bricks, you know, they're, they're throwing, they're throwing these boulders and, and knocking down the ramparts, knocking down the walls and the towers of Katir. Um, it's just such a, just such an, an interesting kind of cinematic experience to, to see, you know, Sarmina turn and, and try to rally the troops and then boom, you know, like the walls are coming down around her. Yeah. She almost got away with it. If it wasn't for that meddling Timbalisto. <laughs> yeah. This dumb Timbalisto he just shows up in the, in the act three. He's put all of his points into demolition. <laughs> yeah. So in chapter 48, Sarmina narrowly escapes the demolition of Katir floating through the newly formed lake on a table. As the woodlanders rescue the remnants of Sarmina's army, Martin confronts Sarmina in a final battle. The two fight savagely, but Martin's stalwart warrior spirit cows the fight in Sarmina, and in her fear of the mouse, she slips into the lake and drowns. Timbalisto, Bella, and Gonf discover Martin's body after the fight, although he is mortally wounded. Bella sends for Abbas Germain, who's taken refuge with the non-combatants with Gingivere to the east. There, Germain dreams up the original plans for Redwall. Oh yeah, we're starting to see a lot of cool things develop here. Um, the, the first thing I got to talk about is the fight between Sarmina and, and Martin is very treacherous. Like mm. I, I want to compare it to the fight between um, Matthias and Clooney, because yeah. this is the final showdown of the bad guys in, in book two in Mossflower book two of Redwall. that um, when we saw Matthias and Clooney fight, you know, they're very evenly matched and they both take some wounds. Clooney loses uh, the tip of his tail. Mar uh, Matthias takes, you know, a stab through his paw, but they're very evenly matched and don't really take that much. Um, uh, they don't take that many battle wounds from each other in this exchange. That is so different from Martin and Sarmina, mm -hmm. where 
it's even expressed that she has like open wounds. She scored these wounds that uh, in this battle against her back. And then uh, Martin, uh, the same where he gets scores across his back multiple times that they are both fatally wounded in this. It's just that um, Martin is so fierce in his battle against Armina that she backs into the lake and drowns. And that's kind of how we, we learn that her fear of water is most likely because she can't swim. And so yeah. that's her ultimate demise. I love the inclusion that Jake's kind of sneaks in here that Sarmina is terrified of water. She knows where the water is. She knows where it is in any other instance we have. She's uh, terrified that this water is coming into Kotir at the very early flooding of the castle or the fortress, whatever you want to call it. And it, her hyper awareness of the water because of her fear of the water really plays into the fact that she is so preoccupied and terrified of Martin in this fight that she does not know that the water's behind her, that he interests her, mm. interests her back into. And I think that's a really clever kind of cheeky inclusion that, that Jake slips in here to show just how fearsome Martin is. Yeah, I mean, you're totally right. I hadn't even thought of that. You know, the fact that she loses track of her surroundings and yet the entire rest of the book she's been like she knows where the water is. You're you're totally right. Um Martin embodies the spirit of Boar, uh the fighter in this fight. And I think this is an interesting end cap you know to this idea of like destiny what is the destiny of these creatures and and how does you know destiny kind of shape a little bit of of how they interact so we knew what was going to happen with boar and i think there's this sense that martin knows what's going to happen too and sarmina knows what's going to happen uh just like Clooney kind of knew what was going to happen um and yet she's blind to it in the moment when it comes um I think this is a soft magic or yeah, I think this is a soft magic in, in these books um, because I think this idea of the warrior spirit, the embodiment of the warrior, warrior spirit, we saw that when Matthias was introduced to Clooney and, and when Matthias was in the full Martin, the warrior um, armor, um, Clooney saw him as Martin from his dreams. He was the embodiment of Martin. And we see that same thing here in the ferociousness and the battle that Martin has with Sarmina, it feels like he is the embodiment of Bor the Fighter. And so I think that this is that I want to I want to call this the the warrior spirit magic of Redwall, because I think yeah. we're going to see this reoccur. I, and we know that there's a tie back from Martin to Matthias. There, there's something that happens there that we we haven't quite gotten to. Um, but yeah, I, I, I want to track this as we read other books, because I think that this, this is going to be a reoccurring magic of, of Redwall. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have a, a lot of thoughts about, you know, this this idea of the soft magic of destiny, um, because, I, again, I I do think that a lot of what Jake's wants to say is that anyone can be the warrior. You know, anyone can be the hero. But I also think in these early books anyway, destiny does take a, a space, you know, take a place. Um, and I think it's interesting how Martin kind of fits into this kind of soft magic because he does, he's, he's going to show up a lot. Yeah. And we see that the, uh, the mortal wounds that um, Martin take bring him to the gates of the black forest where he's talking 
to Boar the fighter. We don't really know what. No, he ta- he talks to Boar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I th- sorry, I thought you were you're adding something to it. He talks to the Boar the fire at the gate. Uh, sorry, Boar the fighter at the gates of the Black Forest. And this is a thing I want to explore so much about is the the Black Forest, the whole concept of the Black Forest. That's really the you know death's door. Um, and Boar being there, I think is. Uh, and Martin having this conversation, kind of mumbling this conversation with him, I think is something that we're going to see a little bit more of, or I hope we see a little bit more of. But I, I loved this idea um, in in the the last bit of this this book, um, just just exploring that. Um, I there's a lot of tension that's going on with Martin uh, and his wounds that Bella herself is push is being pushed to her absolute limits. We hear that she is like tearing through Moss Flower in a fervent sprint faster than badgers can move to try to go and retrieve. Uh, I think it's Abstermain to bring back yeah. to Martin to try to cure, cure his wounds. And um, she's to the point of exhaustion where they say, Bella, you have to slow down. You have to pause to like take a breath before you can go off again. And it's only momentarily where she can feel her legs. Does she say, okay, we need to go strap Jermaine to my back (laughs) (laughs) because I'm going to start running again. It's nuts. Just like seeing her, her power, her speed in this. I was floored by that. So to a, an extent i almost feel like this is this is the moment where we see like like the mama badger in bella because um you yeah. know you think about it like she couldn't save her mate from for Daga. um her son has been missing for decades right and, and like she never even got that closure and now here's another creature who has been to brock hall who has been in her home who went on a quest to find her father um you know he's kind of this surrogate i think for her and so his death or his his like looming death right um being on his deathbed i think stirs her to action in a way that completes a story arc for bella that hasn't necessarily been completely explicitly stated but this is the closure that i think bella needs as a character to cope with the rest of what she's seen in her life yeah and i kind of proposed this question in our last um our last episode where we covered book two um salman uh salamandastron uh salamandastron salamandastron yeah 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 we're recording this a little late so my my brain's a little foggy yeah uh in sound sound and but is martin really the main character of this book i know that this end has focuses so much on martin however martin would die if it was not for the entire quorum we see so many people spring into action including gomp including chib including bella and jermaine and um and uh, Columbine, we see so many different hands having and and delivering of information to try to get Bella and Jermaine there in a time that can save um, Martin's life. We see Ben and Goody mm-hmm. having to try to keep him alive, and we see the hairs building a 
a fort around him uh out of uh out of grass and and weeds in order to try to you know cover him from the wind like we just see so many people springing in action to try to keep martin alive then again it's like yeah of course martin's the one that's on the his life is on the line he's the one at the black forest but man if it wasn't for the quorum as a whole coming together that he would have passed I love this moment mm-hmm. that happens with the, all of them coming together. And I have to ask the question, is it really about Martin or is it about the quorum working together? Yeah. Again, I, I think that this is a, an ongoing, an ongoing question that I struggle with too, um, is, is, you know, really trying to figure out what is the role of the warrior? What is the role of, of uh, a figurehead like Martin, you know, Bella is capable of leading the quorum. Skipper is, is capable of leading. Lady Amber is, is capable of leading. Uh, formal, you know, we have all of these figureheads that make up the quorum and any one of them is is capable of leading. So what use is there for for Martin? You know, what what is the symbolic purpose or meaning of Martin? Um, and I, I think it, it keeps coming back to this idea of like the symbol, idea of a figurehead, because if we can externalize the goal, right? If we, if we can rally behind some kind of mission or, or, or a person or something like that, that can bring unity. Um, and I, I find it really interesting. I also think it's really interesting that it takes Martin to kind of, build a piece to forge a piece with uh sarmina and and sarmina's horde um because not all of sarmina's army is is murdered you know not all of them um are killed in this battle there's there are many of them that are granted that kind of clemency and and granted exile um peaceably and and it takes martin to get there um so I I think yeah. interesting. That, I want to talk about that more in the next chapter, but yeah. Yeah, I think it's interesting that Martin performs this kind of symbolic function and and just kind of how different I think the quorum is when Martin is in this role. Yeah, I want to talk about uh Abistrumain's vision though, because she sits down and she she's with Columbine, right? Where she's yeah. she's talking about Lomhenge and the, and what she couldn't do there that she can now do in Mossflower. And she starts sketching out a building which she wants to make a full-blown abbey that would be peace for the um for the Woodlanders, for for Corum, where he says we where she says we can work together, we can have orchards, we can have farms, we can build something that's sustainable and safe and have peace and work together that we couldn't do in Lomhedge. And um go ahead. <laughs> well, you're totally right. I you're totally right. Um the whole conversation she has with Columbine is like Columbine says, Oh, are you, are you drawing pictures of rebuilding the Lowham edge? And Jermaine is like, no, uh, no, this is something totally different because I think that Lowham edge can't exist. You know, the vision that I have. Yeah, it can't. Wouldn't, wouldn't exist without the quorum wouldn't exist without Moss flyer. And it's because she's, she's looking toward the unity that the quorum has established you know we're looking mm-hmm. at a place that combines the best of all of these different uh societies you know we're, we're talking about a place for the moles that is not 
um what what was the was it mole deep you know we're, we're, i don't remember i think yeah. it was mole deep um we're talking about a place for the otters that is not camp willow we're talking about a place yeah. for uh the batchers that is not uh brock hall we're talking about a place for the squirrels you know that is not you know just the forest where where lady amber lives the the combination of of all of these these many different uh creatures into one society as opposed to separate societies and she kind of suggests like loam hedge couldn't have worked that way because loam hedge was really only ever designed for one purpose and that was you know the solitary um settlement for these mice and only um, for mice yeah and it's that unifying vision that i think is so wonderful that speaks to the whole spirit of redwall and really what we've learned through moss flower yep yeah and that, that that's why i think it's it's poetic that um jake's provides that in this chapter is that as she's saying that they're they're working together to save martin from his wounds like that's that's why Redwall is so important is because because they're yeah the the warrior is important to to Redwall but Redwall is important to the warrior too and that's kind of what's unraveling in this in this chapter. Um, she also kind of talks through the the logistics a little bit where she says you know um, there's a quarry here when when we looked at Cotier when we snuck in we saw that the foundation is made out of redstone and the redstone came from a quarry. And we could build an app. We could build this abbey using the resources that are already here. And it'd be, it's, it's by the river. We would be able to, you know, have the farmlands that she mentioned earlier. Um, she's, she's thinking way beyond just, just what Redwall could be, but how Redwall could work in this area. I think that's really cool because, you know, we see all those in Redwall later, we see the, the, the rock quarry that's where asmodeus is and we see the river and we see the moss flower woods i mean the, obviously those those are there where it's really cool to see this coming together at the very end of the book and i don't think it was possible to see this vision for redwall um without the quorum like she she came here you know almost seeking asylum but learned this is a way of life where if we could all just work together we could build up something so much greater. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I love how this is kind of coming together into a thematic statement. This is one of the things I love about the end of this book is how it, it ties together these ideas. And I think still leaves the, the door open to further explore some of the implications of these conversations. So in chapter 49, Jermaine returns to Mossflower with Bella and begins tending to Martin's wounds. The Woodlanders formally exile Sarmina's army, ushering in a new age of peace for Mossflower. Yeah, I, I, I think I think this is a good time to talk about the exile of Sarmina's army. Um, I have I have thoughts that I I don't think are are great. <laughs> for this i i yeah what do you think so there's a conversation in redwall that gingivere has with matthias and basically squire gingivere kind of says like 
cool, you got this new sword. What are you going to do with it? Um, because a sword is only designed for one thing. And you have to determine how you are going to utilize that. Because, you know, in Clooney's hands, it's clear what he would do with it. So can Matthias set himself on a different path? And I think that this book explores the same concept, the same idea, because Martin gets this sword and there's a conversation, a direct conversation. I can't, I can't remember who it's with, but there is a converse, conversation about, you know what this is for. So you have to determine how it's going to be used. It's not the sword that makes the warrior right? It's, it's just a tool to meet out the, the warrior's will. So what are you going to will for it? And I, I think that Martin comes in and, and, and sees and understands the weight of that. Um, he is taught by Boar. He sees what Boar's life is like. He sees what Boar chooses. And I think he weighs like, you know, what do we do with these these villains? You know, what do we do with these people who have been so cruel? But I see in Martin the same kind of empathy that he gave to that uh, that dead body on the beach. You know, this is the culmination of Martin's understanding of, of a warrior's purpose and really an understanding of like what a warrior is for. A warrior is not there to inflict violence upon other creatures. A warrior is there to protect what is sacred. And I think that in granting exile to these creatures, he's exercising a sense of justice that is like true justice, right? Allowing them to make the choices um, that hopefully, you know, will lead to, to fruition. We know that vermin are bad like the bad guys are always bad in a brian jake's book but the good guys still seem to understand that um just because you know they've made the wrong choices doesn't mean that they're always deserving of death and that al al alternatives exist and this is what is good this is what is right or righteous yeah i totally i i i agree with your with your statement, I, I think that it really has to do with Martin's empathy for um, and mercy for Sarmina's army, the, the green eyed army and or the thousand eyed army, I guess, and sends them on their way. Um, <laughs> I thought it was a little weird to, you know, give them a good scrubbing before you send them off. <laughs> that seemed like a weird inclusion where I was like, yeah, I guess you should wash some weasels, some wet weasels behind the ear and, you know, kick them in the butt on their way out. Um, I think it's Skipper is the one that gives them very explicit directions. You can go North, you can go East, um, but don't come back here. You, you know, you, you can't make your way back here. You, you're going to be exiled. Um, or it may, maybe I got the directions wrong, but um, basically says you can go wherever you want. You just can't come back here. Like, and if you come back here, we will kill you, but you need yeah. to, you, you need to leave. A part of me wondered if this was going to be a build up to Clooney because, you know, sending the, the, the vermin back into the wilderness to, to Rome to try to find home. And then they come back to Redwall to try to get Redwall. Um, I, I didn't know if that's where Jake's was going to lead for it. I now, now finishing the book, I don't think that's the case. I, you know, that's kind of a hot take is, 
um, uh, to think that these vermin lead to Clooney's band coming back to try to get to Redwall. However, I do think that the premise of Redwall, um, of the quorum of these creatures working together, falls apart with the exile of these individuals. Because I know, I know giving them a second chance to find a life of their own is the merciful thing for a warrior to do. But I think integrating them into Redwall would have been better than have them continue down the path that they're on. Of Yeah. And you a vermin tide, I guess. I don't know what else to yeah. call it. You bring up a great point. And I think this is if we want to talk about my criticisms for the Redwall series, this is my number one criticism. The deepest criticism I have is that there is a determinism as to whether you are good or whether you are bad for Brian Jakes. And it depends on who you are born as, you know, like to, to what species are you born? Um, if you are a stoat, you will only ever be evil. If you are a weasel, you will only ever be evil. And I think that while this provides a moral simplicity for the series that is palatable for children, I do think that it provides serious limitations ideologically for this whole series. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I, I really, and we're going to talk, talk about this more with our guess of contributors because in the review episode, because I know we're not the only ones that feel this way. Um, but I will say that it, it is a little disappointing to see at the very end of this book. I, I wish that kind of played out a little bit different than it did. Um, and it's something that probably my biggest criticism of all of Jake's works, like you said, is, is this idea of there's a blatant good and a blatant bad. Um, and there's not a lot of deviation from that. Yeah. Well, before we jump into, uh, what I believe is chapter 50. Let's take a quick break and then we'll get uh, right back to it. All right, we're back. Uh, Trevor, you want to take us into chapter 50? Yeah, chapter 50, uh, Martin wakes up 20 days after the vermin are exiled to find that Mossflower is starting to heal. Gomf has married. Stone is being hauled back from the quarry to the east for the construction of Redwall Abbey. Ah, yeah, I love <laughs> I love the, the kind of wrap up. Where are they now? Kind of chapter. We saw that in Redwall. Um, that's when we get some good, some good updates. We see that here too. Um, yeah. and, and I guess into the next chapter, um, very fun fact that, uh, Gomp and his wife, uh, Columbine, right. Yeah. Um, they take up in a, uh, abandoned building of St. Ninian's church. You know, I had completely forgotten that detail, but you're right. They go off <laughs> and and yeah, they they start, you know, their life at St. Ninian's. Yeah. And so it's not far from St. Ninian's that they start the construction of Redwall because of the the space and where it is. Um, yeah, they start that start that construction. So my question to you, Trevor, 
is what the heck happens with Kotir? Is it just a lake that's that's there? Yeah. What man. what is it? I it's just it's a ruins now. They knocked it down with boulders. They turned it into a lake. Yeah. I I honestly don't remember uh reference to Katir in any other book, so we're gonna have to keep our eyes open. But um so far as I, I know, there's really no When we first started Mossflower, you texted me and you said, Is Kotir the ruins that Clooney runs into at the very beginning of Redwall? And I said, I don't think so. I don't think it is. But we don't really get a, de- a definition as to what the ruins are that the, the cart runs into. I thought it was St. Ninian's Church, but I went back and looked, and it's not very explicit that it's St. Ninian's Church. It's just that it's in front of the church. Yeah. And that's why they, they take it over. So St. Ninian's is not referenced as anywhere near Katir. You know, it's, it's not like the, no, the, the no, no, refuge no. You're or, right. or anything. So I, I, I honestly don't know. Um, I can't say whatever happens to Katir. I don't, I don't know if Jake's had greater plans for these ruins of Katir. Um, it, we're going to have to put a pin in it and, and read through some other books and see if we find any allusions to, you know, this like sunken castle or this sunken fortress. Yeah. I looked it up and we see mo- more of Kotir in the long patrol and is mentioned in the Sable Queen. Okay. Well, I haven't read the Sable Queen. It's one of the few that I didn't read. So <laughs> I haven't read either. So um, <laughs> stay tuned for that season where we get to those because we'll, <laughs> we'll revisit this. Um, but yeah, I thought that was a nice little inclusion. Uh, it's nice that Gonth gets married. I guess this is maybe another trope. We keep naming a lot of Jake's tropes in this book, <laughs> but um, of the gifted bride at the end of a Redwall book. <laughs> So we see Columbine and uh, and um, Gomp get married, um, and it's a nice little happy ever after. We we get a little glimpse as to what's happening. So a little peek behind the curtain. I did not know much about this book before before we started. I may have mentioned this before. Um, I did not even read the back of the book before we read this, and so. In my mind, I believe that Mossflower was just this, the foundation of the Abbey, because it happens in Mossflower Woods. Makes sense that it's the foundation of the Abbey. I was not wrong in my prediction because it (laughs) kind of is the foundation of the Abbey. However, this is a story that I did not expect we would have, and I loved it. I love what we discover. I love everything that leads up to this happy kind of bow ending for um for Mossflower and the Quorum and the foundation of, of Redwall. I thought it fit in very well to what my expectations were for this chapter. Well, for this the the this last book. I think this is how you do a prequel right, you know? Um you yeah. I don't necessarily need an answer for everything. You know, like I think that the creation of Martin's sword, like that's such an excellent detail and I do love it. But I also think like, you know, I don't need to know how Han Solo got his blaster. That's not a question <laughs> that I really needed to know, you know? So what about a ship? Or <laughs> yeah, I don't I, I don't know. It's it, yes, there are stories there, but I don't necessarily need all of those stories. And I think that Mossflower is just the perfect balance. It's the perfect balance of like, well, how did this happen? 
And Jakes comes in and is like, let me tell you all about it. And so this is the story of the founding of Redwall, but it's not about laying brick so much as it is about yeah. what what even is Redwall symbolically and how did we get there? And I think that as a social ideal, man, this, this book does it. <laughs> yeah, it does it really well too. And um, I think the parallels of Redwall versus Cotier goes to the fact that Cotier is not um, really people working together. It's not. It's it's a it's a rule where you have um, a, a, a lord that's ruling over its inhabitants. That it's you know the the idea that Cotier existed because the woodlanders would have to pay taxes, uh, food taxes to Verdaga. Um, and it, you know, led to the quorum being created. However, uh, Redwall itself is a very um, uniform, peaceful existence. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, there, it, it's two two solves for a problem of how do we get people? You know, how can we um, have the the resources or the, or the ability to survive in in the wilderness? And we see two different, very different approaches to it. The quorum works. <laughs> uh, Sar- uh, Sarmina, the, her approach did not work. <laughs> I think, too, one of the things I love about the construction of this book is the idea that we open with Katir and Katir having pre-existed. And it is about how, how a society crumbles how a society falls apart under oppression. And conversely, you know, as Katir literally crumbles, we see the the real social foundation for the success of Redwall come together, that foundation being built action by action by the Quorum, so that at the end of the book, there is no more Katir, but there is a Redwall. And yeah, I, I great. love that symmetry. Yeah, you're totally right. I, n- I never really thought about it. Like we really are thrown into just the politics of Cotier at the very beginning. Like we see the, the upending of um, Verdaga and we see <laughs> Sarmina come into power. And yeah, you're, you're totally right. Yeah, this, well, this, we're not done though. We do have two more chapters. They're very brief. If you blink, yes. you might miss them. But we do have more. Yeah. Um, Bella finishes her tale to the young mouse from the prologue in chapter 51 and assists Gonf, son of Gonf and Columbine, in taking the young mouse home. She alludes to many other adventures they had in the past, including the day Martin hung up his sword for good. But it's a tale for another time. I loved this chapter it put a smile on my face that's been there ever since (laughs) i i love that gomf names his son gomf it's just a funny thing it seems like such a very gomf thing to do a little gomf jr i love that this little mouse i don't think he's named but this little mouse is steals like his dad and uh is got his tunic filled with acorns uh, and uh, Gonf even warns to check Bella to check her pantry because uh, he might have, uh, you know, stolen some things. Uh, he's a cheese thief. 
uh, a cheese thief <laughs> is always a cheese cheese thief. It doesn't matter. I love that little inclusion in there. Um, I love that Brock Hall is still standing. That we that we can see that this is seasons later. Um, yeah, that Brock Hall is still standing, and um, Bella, you know, Bella has a very important part in this uh, in this tale, and she has a lot, a lot more tales to tell. Um, I thought this wrapped up so nicely, uh, very comforting. Um, yeah, I th- this put a big grin on my face that that lingered for a long time. Yeah, I love it. Um, this is a chapter to remember for a later book uh, because, you know, they, they allude to, did I ever tell you this story of, of when Martin finally hung up his sword? Uh, mm-hmm. And we, we are going to get that story in this series. So, yeah, we have a lot to learn between what's happened now and Matthias. Um and I, I kind of mentioned that this to you, Trevor. I want to, I want more of Martin the Warrior. I'm so glad that there's more stories to tell because I want more of Martin. I want more of the very early beginnings of Redwall, um, and I'm excited to get to that. However, Mossflower has been such a good book, and the stories that have been told are so um, compelling and interesting that i'm ready to take a break from it simply to get to matameo and see the kind of this the sequel to Redwall before revisiting some of these other stories so yeah. I, I think that we're reading these in the perfect order as the order that jake says it had intended because i think that this is a great way to keep interest in these additional stories i wouldn't mind just jumping right into martin the warrior which i think is the next book but um no i love that that we're taking a little bit of a break and we're seeing what's going on once uh you know after Redwall. yeah no i i totally agree so chapter 52 uh is kind of the <laughs> it's kind of the marvel uh, stinger you know for for a future sequel uh but what in in what feels like an epilogue the long lost sunflash the mace appears before salamandastron to claim his birthright as its new lord let's go i'm so hyped uh i texted you right after this and i was like let's go sunflash i want more of this um yeah this is this has to be the you know a little teaser we knew sunflash was gonna appear i'm actually shocked that sunflash only showed up later because i thought this is my crazy thought I thought Martin and company were going to get the Selimandastrin and only learn that Sunflash is the one who's there, not Boar. That Boar had died, and Sunflash was the one who is actually taking the helm of Sel- of Selimandastrin. Um, but that's not the case. We get we get this glimpse afterwards that he has been called there, and the hairs say, you know, y- y- this has been predestined in time that you will be here by the foundation of Salmondastrin itself. This is such a cool. <laughs> this is such a cool, like little tidbit of lore that. Oh man, I I'm so excited to learn about more about this. I don't really know where where we do. I don't know what book we learn more about Sunflash. Um, so you yeah. you can I, I'm I'm really looking forward to it. I won't spoil when we get to Sunflash uh, because I I do know now uh, when we get to him. I straight up forgot that Sunflash was not in this book. 
um, in the 20 years that has passed since I first read this book. Um, and I, in fact, I think, I think it was actually, it's, it's closer to 23 years since I read this book, but I completely forgot, um, that Sunflash was not here. I thought for certain in my head that Martin showed up and discovered that Boar had died and Sunflash was the, the, uh, badger there until I, I actually read Boar's part. And I was like, oh yeah, that's right. Sunflash is like a totally separate epic, like a totally separate story. Oh, wow. That's that's interesting. Because So we were probably thinking the same thing back when we recorded book one. Um, yeah. Gotir, yeah. Because uh, yeah, I, 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 I remember stories of Sunflash. I remember... <laughs> his mm. you know some of his arc um and i it's it's not in this book it's a completely different book that i had confused the two yeah this is such a cool little inclusion at the end that really got me excited i i imagine if you were a kid reading this for the first time there's no other books that are out yet just the excitement for book three and book four to kind of come out for you to to continue on the, in the journey um this is super cool. I, I'm I'm excited. I'm excited to jump into Matame. I'm excited to learn more about Sunflash. I know he's not in Matameo, but you know what I mean. Like, yeah. I'm excited to get some of these additional stories and and to continue Redwall. And I cannot believe that is the end of Mossflower. The end of Mossflower. A journey. <laughs> like, oh my gosh. Um, th- I. I these two first books were so long. Kotir and Sal, uh, Sal were so long, um, that, you know, we've had to do essentially, um, <laughs> four episodes to fit into these, um, these books, uh, that this one being so much shorter, um, really just felt a little odd. Like <laughs> we just have <laughs> such a short little book at the end. Um, but uh, yeah, I can't believe that this journey is over. We do have some uh, memorable uh, side characters and environment as always. So we're going to take a quick break. We're going to jump over to that to finish it out. All right, Trevor. Let's let's go through our side characters in Berman. It's a short list this time again because it it's is. such a short chapter. Yeah, yeah. But, th- there's not uh, a whole lot. There are no new characters that we're introduced to, other than Sunflash the Mace, of course. Um, so it it really kind of boiled down to for me, you know, who has a bigger role in the end here than in previous parts. So we're gonna revisit Tim Ballisto and Sunflash the Mace. Man, you know that my vote's going for Tim Ballisto. Psych, <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely Sunflash the Mace. Uh, even though he only pops up for literally like three sentences, it's got to be Sunflash. This has got me so hyped for for his story. It's a badger. We're books and badgers. You know, I'm always going to be on that badger side. I, I kind of, I'm inclined to agree. Um, I know that Tim Ballisto is more of a character in two other books that we are going to read eventually. Um, but I I think for me, it's Sunflash the Mace. You know, you don't, this is the, he gets this Marvel style epilogue, you know, like he, he's so good. He's, I'll do it myself. Yeah. He's the teaser. He's, 
he's the guy who shows up and you're just like, well, who was that? That was Sunflash. Oh my gosh, I can't wait. Yeah. He's great. Yeah. No, it's 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 great. Um, I know I'm I'm teasing on Tim Ballista a lot. He does have a, a bigger story that plays in later. Um, so I am excited to to talk more about Tim Ballisto and, and uh, his origins, but um, I'm way more excited for Sunflash. <laughs> Our most memorable vermin list is looking pretty sparse. I, there's, <laughs> there are quite a few named vermin in this, but it's really just Brog. He's the he's the one. He's really um, the only one with any role at all. You know? Yeah. I guess you could put Wet Weasel in there. Um, <laughs> there Soaking was who, Stoat, I suppose. Who's Who's the heckler? Uh, I can't even remember the heckler's name, but we we discover very briefly the heckler's name that has been yelling at Sarmina, you know, snide comments through all of book two. Uh, and Sarmina just tells Brock like, oh, you know, you should take so-and-so out with you. And uh, I don't really care if he comes back. You know what I mean? Yeah. Is it Weggs? Maybe um... it, could, it could be. Um, I can't remember the name of, of the it it's a rat that has shown up in other scenes um he's there throughout the whole book and and we only discover at the very end that uh he's just he's been heckling sarmina the whole time um it's a foul whisker maybe uh he was uh, he was slain by her by sarmina once she discovered he wanted to desert no that wasn't uh. him it was it was someone specifically when when um brog goes out for the sword uh after bane dies um she she hears someone yelling something from the battlefield or something to that effect it's before brog goes out to like lay out traps or whatever um she hears the the rat call like yell out something and she recognizes that's the voice that's been teasing me this whole time Brog, go get rid of him. Well, uh, a little fast forward. We spent <laughs> way too much time trying to find <laughs> this reference uh, that Trevor mentioned, only to find out this happened in book two, Salmondastrin. So <laughs> doesn't even qualify <laughs> for this chapter. But yeah. Trevor, what do you find out? It, it was Rat Flank. Rat Flank is the one who's been making fun of uh, Sarmina for the whole second part of the book. And she finds him out and she has uh, she has him killed. Um, yeah, so uh, there's really only one memorable vermin from book three and it's Brog. So, <laughs> so Brog winner by default. Brog winning by default. Um, and it's funny that Brog is the winner by default because he really only became captain by default. He was like one of the only ones <laughs> left. The one that was left. So it makes sense that he gets, you know, the, the vermin of the week. Uh, I will that. say he gets a great death. Um, because again, I, I love how many of the vermin die just tragically. Like there's this beautiful irony in how they go out. So Brog pushes a table out of the tower where he and Sarmina are sitting as Basically, Katira is coming down because uh, our our favorite uh, ballistaist. What do you what do you call somebody who fires a trebuchet? Uh, it's Tim Ballisto. Tim Ballisto's <laughs> <laughs> flinging rocks, right? 
Yeah. And uh, and Brog kicks this this uh, table at the door and it, and says to Sarmina, "Hey, um, look, let's jump on the table. Let's swim to shore." And Sarmina jumps on and takes off without him. And Brog is like, "But wait, I thought we were gonna go together." And she's just like, "Figure it out." And then he never gets a chance because Tim Ballisto kills him with a with a trebuchet. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Oh, Brog, we hard, hard, hardly knew you. Uh, yeah, so that wraps up our memorable vermin. Um, we do have some fun facts. Um, Trevor, did you want to share those now, or do you want to share those? Uh, yeah, I think maybe we'll we'll bring up some of these fun facts. I'm going to save the death count tally for our big review episode when we do it next week. Uh, I think that will be surprised by the numbers again because they're very different numbers from red wall uh but just some interesting facts some stuff that i thought was uh kind of fun pine martins um are part of the family of mammals called mustelids which include weasels badgers otters martins and wolverines all of which are native to uh england yeah and stoats are not in the u.s so if you're reading this as a u.s reader and uh thinking what the heck is a stoat it's just because we don't have them here yep yeah that's right um of course we know already germaine is first referenced in Redwall and is the source of methuselah's blueprints of the abbey although i believe in Redwall, she is not an abbess she is actually just called Sister Germaine. Yep, Sister Germaine, that's correct. And this is kind of an eagle-eyed um, uh, fact that, or sorry, I guess this is just a fact for eagle-eyed readers uh, because this happens so briefly in Redwall. It's just mentioned kind of in passing, and it's a great detail that Jake springs back for, for Mossflower. Yeah. I also do think it's funny that uh, Red Wall mentions that formal was a title that was given to formal by Martin the Warrior. And yet here we are in Moss Flower and formal is still formal and he's never <laughs> he's never uh, met Martin. So a little bit of a discrepancy there. Yeah, I wondered about that because I had that in my notes as well. Um, I wondered if that was only because the story of Moss Flower is being told by Bella. So she's referencing the formal in oh. the story to Gaunt's child. But I don't really think that that holds up with some of the, I don't think that holds up with some of the other instances. So um, maybe that's not true. You know, it would be an explanation though. I, th that could possibly be, I don't know. Um, hadn't thought about the fact that this is a narrative from Bella's point of view. So um, we we already know about my fun fact about Bella of Brockhall being descended of Bor the Fighter, uh, but we do get the other lords of Salamandastron um, as they are listed in this kind of long lineage that Bor explains to Martin the Warrior. Uh, the ones that we get to know a little bit are Earthrun the Gripper, Spear Lady Gorse, which is fascinating because I think that yeah. Bella kind of insinuated that we don't have Lady uh, 
lords of Salamandastrin, but here we do. One of the badger lords was a lady. Um, Blue Stripe the Wild uh, set a ruler, and then Lord Rocktree and Boar the Fighter. Um, that's kind of the lineage. And as we know, the next in line after Boar the Fighter was Sunflash the Mace. Yep, Sunflash the Mace. And then my last little bit of fun info is that Sarmina marks the second time a big bad in one of these books is killed not by the sword of Martin the warrior, but by some effect of the environment. Yes, because if you remember, which I forgot the first time reading Redwall, Clooney is not killed by Martin. He is uh, sorry, uh, by Matthias. He is killed by um, the bell tower. He's killed by the Joshua. Oh, Joseph Bell. I'm sorry. Um, I think I might have accidentally referenced the Joshua Bell earlier, but yeah, he's killed by the Joseph Bell. So I think this is a very interesting thing. I wonder if Jake's doesn't have um, in in future books, if he doesn't have the main protagonist give the killing blow. I wonder if this is going to be another trope that we get to get to name. Yeah, I think we we should call it the Joseph Bell trope. <laughs> the, yeah, that would help me to remember that that's what it kills uh, Clooney, but definitely. Well, that concludes episode four of season two. We are not done with season two, though. I have to emphasize this. We have another episode coming out for season two, and that is our Moss Flower review episode. This is that great episode, our review episode, where we have our other contributors, our, our great friends, um, Tiff and... William come on the on the show and we're going to talk about what we loved what we didn't love about Mossflower. We're going to do our official reviews um, uh, our number reviews of the heroes and villains. Um, we're going to get that death count from Trevor as he's been tracking all the, the deaths in this book. We have so much to cover in that episode. It might be another two-parter. I don't know. The Season two just might be the season of two-parters because every episode <laughs> gets so long. We'll, we'll see. Um, but as always, Trevor, it's so great to be able to spend this time to talk to you about these books. And uh, I really enjoyed Moss Flower and uh, enjoyed the conversation even more. Um, we want to be able to hear from you guys on this conversation. So um, please follow us on instagram and threads at books and badgers that's uh, books in badgers with an n in the middle um, you can also uh, email us questions that you may have or corrections if we got some stuff wrong which as i just said <laughs> joshua belts of joseph bell we get things wrong all the time uh, and you can email those comments to books in badgers at gmail.com uh, with the little n between books and badgers um, one of these days I'll try to get the actual books and badgers, but you know, some, uh, some bookstore is like holding that. So it'll probably be a while. Lastly, uh, Trevor, we're still in spooky season. You have tons of stuff going on. If you're listening to this outside of spooky season, know that you can always step right back into that spooky season with, uh, his incredible podcast, Slee House presents, uh, you've got a lot of stuff going on. Is there anything you want to plug? Yeah, I mean, again, this is the spooky season. So if you're listening to this now, you can probably go back, uh, listen to the episode that just dropped with uh, Katrina Carruth, where we talk about um, your spooky season needs, um, books, TV, movies, 
snacks. Uh, it's a really good time. I've also got some cool interviews on the horizon. Nat Cassidy's coming in to talk about nestlings. Usman T. Malik is coming in to talk about the importance of world literature and I think some really cool fantasy. So if fantasy is your jam, definitely check that out. And then a little later this year, I'm going to be talking with some other cool writers like Jenny Kiefer, her debut novel uh, that's coming out in January. So stick around. Awesome. Great. Well, that wraps up book three uh, of Water and Warriors, and that wraps up Mossflower. So thank you so much for, for listening if you made it this far. And we'll see you in that review episode. Bye. Bye.